Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, gang, before we get into the podcast, just a quick shout out to the sponsors and make sure you have a listen to this because there's some great savings to be had. The podcast wouldn't exist without the amazing support that I get from a handful of companies. Skilled Athlete, Kill Capture, Brother Shave, Sword Australia and Aussie Strength. Amazing companies all set up and run by veterans. All of these businesses have a Warrior U discount code to receive savings on all their products. So we're a mutual. So we're owned by our members. So we're what one would call traditional terms would be almost like a cooperative. But mm. we're owned by our members. So we're profit to member, sort of purpose over profit. So everything that we make goes back into the products and services and offering for our members. Mm. And, um, and our members, uh, we've got a very clear purpose, and that's to serve those that protect us. And that kind mm. of is our North Star, I guess, in terms of if we're looking at anything strategically, we, we always go back to that and say, well, does it tick that box or doesn't it? And then then obviously there's other criteria that come from there. So you know, we've been around for about 50 years. We've got we're a fully regulated member owned um, mutual bank. So we're regulated the same as the big banks. We've got a full suite of products and services to our core field of membership who are ADF personnel, family friends and contractors of defence. Yeah, right. I remember. I think my my first ever bank account was with the um, Defence Bank up in Townsville. Yeah, cool. That'd be right. Mm. So, so we've got all of that. We've got an award winning app, and anyway, we won't get into the sales job. But um, we, we've come coming through this um, this environment really well because mm. our field our field of membership of ninety you know, percent of them are government employees, and uh, so we've got that very unique privileged position within. Australia and 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 um, in terms of looking after the, um, the, the you know the families and then as I said we we're developing products to to go after um, defence contractors as well. And you're an expert, or your your organisations are experts, really in the defence community and understanding their their needs. I would assume. It wouldn't surprise you. There's a huge um, number of our people are sons, daughters, aunties, uncles married to defence, current serving past, present personnel. So, in fact, we won, a, we won a Prime Minister's Award last year for veteran spouse employment and um, made a virtue of that in terms of, you know, trying to get those sort of acknowledgements. It was a tough field. I'm not so sure the BHP might have even been in it. I can't remember. But we're very proud of that and we've tried to embed our defence credentials into all of our products and services and all of our recruitment methodologies in the ecosystem. So, and you've worked you've worked your way up through the financial system. I have no doubt um, over the last thirty years up to where you are today. So, what changes have you seen over those thirty years? Everything but nothing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've been through several crises. 
and runs some, you know, fairly large parts of big banks. But I think that at the end of the day, what I'm seeing now is there's almost a retreat to the village type psyche pervading society where people are getting strength now and more out of a community. I think you're going to see some of those old virtues will reemerge um, as people see security and strength and in to the past. So, you know, I think the advent, the suburbs will start more suburb-centric living, I think. You'll see multi-generational families living together for social and economic reasons. I think you'll see um, a lot more. I mean, online is going to become even more and more pronounced for, for basic things. And I think that there's some big socio-political things that are changing in the world that some of these things are permanent changes. They're not just timing. So, mm. you know, I, I don't – I think flexible working, you know, that's been going on a lot of organisations for a long period of time, but I think that's going to be just become a norm. Flexible working about where you work, how you work, you know, location, technology, all those sort of things. Yeah. And I think the big challenge in, in an environment like this is not lose the opportunity, and it is an opportunity – to create something out of this. So you're absolutely mad. In our case, what we're doing is we go very, very hard to leverage and communicate and, um, you know, our unique credentials. So, you know, one of our biggest in-market competitors in on the home lending side is NAB. And, of course, you know, you don't need to read too much into the newspaper headings this morning to find out what's going on there. So, you know, we're going to – we've gone very hard on that. As soon as we heard all that yesterday, we had a sense it was coming and – so we, you know, we we try to be very agile. Uh, I hate to use that word, sorry. Quick on our feet. I think leadership and sort of white water, I call it. It's sort of that. You know, you've often got to make decisions based on all the facts. Oh, I love that leadership in white water. That's a that's yeah. a keeper. <laughs> well, that's what I call it. And making decisions without all the facts and data, mm. being comfortable and at peace with your relationship with uncertainty and ambiguity. Mm. If you're not, you know, you're really struggling in this environment. And also, I think you're right. They always say that, you know, water runs downhill. And if you as a leader are, you know, if you're down in the mouth and, you know, you don't have the, I hate this word resilience, but if you don't have the, the ticker, even though deep down you might have a lot of, you might have some doubts about things. When you're a leader, you actually don't have the right to, you know, you've got to be authentic and real. But you also, you know, as soon as you're seen as being unduly, Rattled. Um, rattled. Mm. That's an immediate door opener for everybody else to think the same. Let's come back to resiliency in a bit. But before we do that, I'm, you know, I, I give a lot of advice to young people who are joining the Defence Force these days to, to tell them to join with a view of getting out. So that might be four years down the track or it could be 20 like, like myself. What about investing when they, when they join? Is there a point where, where you like to be able to reach out to people who've just joined defence and say, "Hey, look, we, you know, we can we can help you with this." I, I know I would have. I wish I'd taken more notice of the people at the, the defence bank when I when I first joined. I remember they used to go around and, and have sort of seminars and things like that. But I'm just wondering if if that's part of the strategy. There's the, as you know better than me, there's sort of a, a migratory pattern in defence. So there's officers, and there's if you go through, you know, that's going through ADFA and Duntroon and all that stuff. And if you don't do that, you go through um, Cerberus or Kapuka yep. or Rath Wonga. So 
if you work through those secrets, sort of, and then you'll head off to your, um, you'd understand this better to me, but your preferred, you know, whatever it is, um, be it singleton or whatever you do. So we obviously run, we, we do onboarding seminars still at all those recruit bases. We have big branches and all those bases, but it's changed a lot now from the traditional way. You may remember it's now very much um, technology-driven, you know, um, yeah. with iPads and, and phones and and, um, and onboarding members that way. And then we have a sort of industrial, pro, quite a good process now, which is not, which which needs to be self-service as well as physical because a lot of people don't go back into branches mm. once they leave because you would know you've got to have a security pass and, Often people, when they finish in the ADF, they say, look, I've done my time and that's great, you know, tick that off and I'll move on to my new life. And as you know, that's often, you know, the average length of service for an office is 12 years and and for a non-office is seven. So we've got very young members who go on to multiple careers. So we need to remain relevant to them outside outside military life through electronic channels, contact centre, mobile bankers, and we do that. Now, we've got our own superannuation product, though. Is that right? Mm. So we do we do have a, a wealth opportunity that we partner with someone to, to provide that. But uh, again, I think that's an area that we will pursue in a more uh, progressive way. Mm. You'd probably be aware that there is a lot of a lot of tension and a lot of politics sitting around veterans, and you may be aware that the, the government is setting up a transition authority for veterans or people leaving the military and the AFB. I wasn't aware of that. Growing, yeah. yeah. I don't know what it's called, but it will go to transitioning people in a better way. You know, the, that sort of commissioner of veterans or whatever they got appointed mm. that working of that so so we'll be looking to you know see how we can get involved in that in a more holistic way we haven't historically been big players in that space you'd probably be aware that it's been a sector that's been fraught with scandal yeah and therefore we, we've quite clearly chosen not to get into a game that we can't win i do think david that if if you're a for-profit working in that space it's probably better than being a non-for-profit working in that space just because the regulatory framework around the, the for-profits is so much tighter. Oh, I agree. I agree. And so how do you do that? Do you buddy mm. up with an industry fund or, mm. you know, there's all those sort of things. And so, so look, that's something that we'll, we'll have a look at. Yeah, right. um, but, you know, I always said, always said that you've got to play a game that you can win. That's one of my other sort of, you know, um, strategy and leaderships, you know, no point trying to get into an arms race with um, where you've got no point of difference. Mm-hmm. So we've taken some quite contrary views on things. For instance, instead of centralising a lot of functionality, we've decentralised quite a bit of stuff out to our branches. Yeah, right. So we're closer to the members. <laughs> Sounds like guerrilla warfare. <laughs> yeah, right. So we, we've done a bit of that. We, and and we've, we deliberately, and this is going to sound highly contradictory, we haven't just gone down this um, all roads lead to digital. We, we've taken a view that we can't win an arms race with the big banks on mm. purely on digital. We need to have parity and we need, well, you know, we need to have the bait. We need to do the basics brilliantly. Mm. But we think that in our market, there's a strong demand still for a human inter- interaction. Especially now with more globalized communities as opposed to a larger global community. 
And there is definitely more yeah. of that happening, yeah. isn't there? Where where they're starting yeah. sort of village mentality, and, and your local bank is is once again going to be prominent in that. What I've say, what I say, it's our strategy is people led, technology enabled. Yeah, right. Now, what you're finding is that those that have gone down the earth have run into an arms race with the big banks. They'll never win because mm. they've just got so, so much bandwidth and, and you know strength. Mm. And so we've got this point where we know that we cannot outspend the big bank, mm. but we've got this unique set of credentials, educate, that's worth something. And you know we've got that strong interchange between mothers, fathers, aunties, uncles, mm. partners, boyfriends, girlfriends. Um, no one else has that. Yeah. So, so why wouldn't you leverage it? So if you're bearing in mind that the, the Warrior You podcast has over 200,000 downloads now, and a lot of those are defense or ex-defense, if, David, if you wanted to reach out to them directly and say something to them about your point of difference, what would you say? We, we would be, I'm trying to think of the right word, but we're a people-led organization in a, or a member, a member, or we're talking to members potentially. So we're a we're a member-led organisation that mm. um, is emphasising you know human interaction at you know as many point of contact access across multiple channels. It's probably a more eloquent way of saying this, but mm. what we're about is doing the everyday doing people people can be able to do the everyday banking as effortlessly as possible. Mm. We've got a a metric and a, a massive drive internally to reduce member effort in yeah. their day because pe- people actually hate telling their story more than once. Right. You know, when they ring a service provider, you know, when you get put on hold and shunted around the world, you have to tell your story, you know, multiple times. Mm. And and the other thing is people are sick of fine print and bloody documentation of paper. Mm. They just want to the, – the, they want to get the – so that's sort of an ethos of uh, – that's very much our mantra. And then building around that a strong people-led mm. relationship, you know. So, for instance, you look at the current situation with the with the environment we're in now, where a lot of people are, fe- are experiencing reduced hours, loss of employment, or whatever. Mm. Now, as opposed to going out to all our members and just making this blanket statement that you know you can all just have all your mortgage payments put on hold, what we've said is no, that's available. Let's have a chat. Get on the phone. Here's the phone number. Here's the person, mm. and we work it out on a one-on-one relationship basis. So case by case. Yep, and that includes me. Mm. So, in our organisation, one of the beauties of our organisation is even CEOs. Well, I I talk to members all the time. Mm. Yeah, right. And do you Get still access. does Defence Bank still? I remember they used to support you know local communities and sporting clubs and 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 that was part of, I guess, the allure of the Defence Bank is that they used to come in and, you know, I remember our water polo team was sponsored by them for a couple of years. All that on base. Um, mm. Our major philanthropic endeavour is Defence Community Dogs. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very cool. Very highly, and we're the biggest one of those in Australia. So the the provision of fully accredited uh, lab assistance dogs to PTSD sufferers mm. um, and we and but we've got a very unique scenario because they get trained by prisoners. Mm. So we've got a partnerships with New South Wales Corrections and Queensland Corrections mm. who who actually have prisoners in low security prisons who train the dogs under the stewardship and the guidance and the leadership 
in management of our Defence Foundation personnel. So we've got our own employed professional dog trainers. They mentor, coach, guide, work with the prisoners in, in the prison environment to train the dogs. Hmm. The dogs are, are allowed to physically fly on planes in the cabin. You know, these dogs are the, uh, like, you know, you talk about braille dogs. Mm. And so we, that's our major, and that's a real tearjerker because what you see is you, when do, we have a graduation ceremony for these dogs. Yeah. And, and that's when they pass from the prisoner to the veteran. Right. And they're, we do those in the, you know, so two or three times a year. The dog's helping two people, really. <laughs> and of course, corrections love it because it's a great political story for them, but veterans, I mean, God, seriously, I mean, you've, you've lived in that world. I mean, I mean, some of the some of the stories that come out of that, like mm. there's not a dryer in the place. Yeah, right, of course. Like, this is saving lives. Yeah, for sure. So, David, your your you know long career in the in the financial sort of sector, what have you learned about leadership in that time, and has it changed much from when David first walked into a bank <laughs> to where you are now? Okay. Um, well, I think, no, I don't think the basics of uh, have changed much. I think the first thing in leadership is you can't lead through black letter law or you can't lead through the written word or, or emails or you have to have conversations with people. Some of those conversations require courage and some of those conversations don't require as much courage. If you've got a strong sort of, in a very real, I hate this word authentic too, but you know, if you've got a very, if you've got a genuineness about you and a pedigree of that or a background of that, you can have those courageous conversations without people taking undue, allowing people to take meaning out of those as opposed to being offended by them. Mm. And, and I think, so that's the first thing you've got to have, you've got to talk to people. People that, you know, fire off font size 36 emails and capitals and stuff. I mean, that's just cowardly. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that it is you do need to be consistent and it, people will will form a view around your your credibility if if you're inconsistent based with in your response by you know with faced with similar facts well that can be problematic and the other thing is you know you need to no matter how hard or difficult or challenging or ambiguity or you know if you're to use that white water analogy it is you actually have to park or control or moderate your own temperament to to ensure that people are, are picking the right cues, that you're not – it's fine to be uncertain, but if you demonstrate that overtly to, to a large extent, you, you become quite disempowered. I don't think I've heard that uh, said as well in 90 episodes of the War You podcast with leadership, moderate your own temperament. Yeah, I think, that, I think you've said that really eloquently. I usually say – Benevolent manipulation of yourself and others, but I think moderating your own temperament probably explains that a lot better. Balanced. I mean, there's nothing worse. Even I hate to use sporting analogies, but there's nothing worse than you're in a sporting team and the and the, and the captain's having a meltdown you know, at half time. Yeah. You know, all the great sporting team, and I don't want to get into sort of a stereotypical blokey thing, but so so you've got to be balanced. You've got to be, and the other thing I tend to think is you've got to give people hope. So mm. you know you. Look, look, eight times, nine times out of ten, it's never as bad as it seems. Yeah, that's true. But with the fullness of time, the probability of it being really bad diminishes. So 
once sort of things sort of find their natural earth, you get and you've got to have the confidence through judgment and insight to say, look, yes, this looks pretty ugly or challenging. I think at the end of the day, it'll be okay. Mm. And that gives you the peace of mind to actually move forward. And I think that you've got to see, I don't look at challenge. I look, it's more of an opportunity. So you look at my view on this environment we're in now and been in, what, six weeks, is it, roughly? Yeah, about that. Um, you know, to me, that's all opportunity. So my mind, once you got through that first week of, the real, real white water. My mind went very quickly to, what's the opportunity out of this? Yeah, yeah, and so it should. <laughs> so did mine. How can we, yeah, how can we speed the whole? How can we speed up our strategy? You know, what what are our members going to? Where are they going to land out of all this? And how are we going to meet their needs? And the other thing is, you've got to actually. The other thing I'm very big on, and in, in, in that white water stuff, is people need to be absolutely clear about what their role is, and that comes down to. Really simple things like, you know, if you're in a in that sort of white water environment, you've got to know exactly whose job is it to do what. Yeah. And and you can't have any crossover where you've got other people, even out of good in some cases just out of good nature. Yeah. Who, who are trying to pick up the weight of someone else. Yeah. And you've got to call them and say, No, 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 no. It's it's you know, it's Mary's job, it's Bob's job, mm. it's it's that's their role. You do that. Go away. Don't waste your time on that. Focus on your stuff. I've been unfortunate yeah. enough it's to have a couple of industrious idiots in my team over the years. They mean well, but they're, they're such hard workers and they do the wrong thing going down the wrong path. You're, you're right. If people don't clearly know their left and right of arc to operate within, sometimes that can be more of a hindrance. And that quite often came back to me as the leader as well, not giving the guidance that I should have given. So I think, yeah, so keeping going... I think people need to be really, really clear on what their role is and mm. the what's expected. I do think that leadership is is about the grey. It's not about black and white. People who can't manage ambiguity and are comfortable leading in the grey won't succeed. It'll just kill them. Yeah. And you, the, the, you know, I have this sort of inverse pyramid. That the higher you go in an organisation, the more ambiguous your the drivers of your success are. Yeah. Yeah, I like it, and it's true. I'm my own yeah, boss, so, and I'm very. It's very ambiguous what I do for a living. <laughs> it's very grey. So you know, I can get to work as a CEO of the bank today, mm. and there would be a whole bunch of things outside my control that I just need to interpret, mm. understand, and then prioritise around what I'm going to do about it, if anything. Yeah, and in your role, I'm assuming that you have all the responsibility and very little control. And so you, you have to take bets and, and you need to, as I said, don't want to sound cliche, but mm. play a game you can win. But also strategy and leadership is often about what you don't do. Yeah. I like to explain That's that. Where, yeah. So, you know, often you see CEOs who are buzzing around everywhere and, you know, they're all over the place. They're darting from one, one thought bubble to another and, and nothing ever lands. Mm. So, you know, the rev counters at 9,000 revs, they're only going 10Ks an hour. Mm. Because people get confused and they can't, and often leaders do that. For t- they, I'm going to be a wee bit cynical, which is not my nature. Mm. More often than not, when you see a leader doing that, it's a symptom of them being under immense pressure and they're trying to, I'm being very cynical, they're trying to throw their board or their more, you know, I guess in a military world, their bosses off the scent. Mm. Corporate history. You think of the number of big companies that all of a sudden go out and rebrand or 
we'll go out and do a big IT transformation or, or a restructure. More often than not, that's a cynical response to a CEO under massive pressure hmm. who's trying to buy time. Yeah, right. That's interesting. So often. Whereas, as I said, often it's what you don't do. And being disciplined and saying, yeah, we could do that, but it's not going to move the dial. We're not going to win that game. I, mm. might, better get a fan- I might better get a fancy newspaper heading for a week, and then, then it'll be a fish and, fish and ship wrapper. Yeah, so uh, you're staying the course. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, but not being blind and being – you've got to be humble. You've got to be open-minded as well to say, so what we've done, we've, we've got a strategy that's locked in, but, we've, we, but I've, I've said, look, look what's happened in the last two months. We need to go back to the well. Mm and put aside any sort of personal prejudice you might have and say, are these still the right things to do in this environment? And so that's what we've done. And mm. and uh, whereas, you know, we could have easily just said, oh, no, we're right. But, you know, you've got to use this as an opportunity. Yeah. You know, David, I really loved before that you, you changed tact right in the middle of saying, I don't want to make this all blokey. <laughs> so I'm just interested to know, how has it been on your leadership journey the whole equality emergence and which is far you know late for you know for my mind it's later than it should be but anyway um the whole the whole piece around equality and how are you finding that in in your leadership journey i think the world's come a long way i think the first thing is that if you're running a sustainable business it should never be an issue because you should be mirroring expectations and societies, the profile of your members or their needs, mm. your business should be run by people that mirror that. Yeah. So they should be natural stabilizers. If you've got to actually force quotas, mm. I'm being you know blunt, you're not running a good business because mm. you, you haven't got the natural stabilizers in there to say that you've got the, the mindset, the attitude, the, the leadership and insight to make those decisions almost subconsciously. Or the or the advertisement of how you can benefit those people from different genders. And and I've noticed that, you know, the whole quota system for my mind is flawed. But if you've got the right people out there and you've made the job attractive to them, then then they will be attracted to that job. Gender, I mean it's to I mean diversity is a very broad church. Yeah, true. Um and, you know, we tend to default to gender, which is fine, but, mm. you know, there's ethnicity, there's religion, you know, there's all of that sort of stuff comes into it. There's background, there's educational diversity. There's So, you know, there's a lot of unconscious biases in all those areas. Wow, yeah. But I think if you're not, if you're not. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mirroring your... You've all got to. You've got to be sitting over a business that's sustainable, mm. and sustainable means that the way that you've set yourself up mirrors customer bases or or whatever. And so as I've a, never personally had, had an issue with that. Anyway, sorry. I was just going to say, as a C, CEO, how do you go about 
having those conversations with your leaders to make sure that those biases, those unconscious biases aren't permeating through the business so that the culture is one of acceptance and also, I mean, the fact of the matter is there's all these amazing people out there. If those unconscious bias come to play, then you straight away, you you don't have access to all those, to the knowledge continuum, to the smarter people out there training course on that one. <laughs> mm. Look, it's it, it, look because you go and put quotas in place and training courses and things, then it becomes just a tick box exercise. Right. You know, I'm lucky in my organisation, it's small enough to sort of see those things. Um, mm. And we have a, you know, and gender's not the only one, but we have a massive, in our entire organisation, we have a massive percentage in, in female um, mm. because a lot of our branch staff are female. But and but we've got a good mix in leadership too. So you know, I don't know. We're probably we're probably close to fifty fifty in leadership too. So you know, I, I just think you can't if you've got a KPI, you've got to train for it. There's something wrong. Mm. Mm. It comes just this tick box thing where people chase a target, and then inevitably potentially recruiting people that aren't technically competent. Mm. And then in the end, in the end, those people just get burned. Yeah. Um, and that's male, female, Kiwis, buddy, you know, West Australians, you know, you name it. They just get burnt. You're actually not helping them in the long term either. You mentioned before, in fact, you said you said you didn't like the word agile. You said you didn't like the word authentic and you said you didn't like the word resilience, <laughs> which is interesting because they're all words which which I find are probably they're probably being used too much to describe leadership traits, but they're also they're also probably the most powerful words in that toolbox. But in particular, you said um, right up the front that resilience wasn't something that you necessarily, you know, liked that to use that word. But I know what you mean. But I'd like to also know from a perspective with resilience, how do you measure if someone is resilient or not when you're looking at them perhaps for another yeah, new position? Yeah, how they, yep, how they react. Hmm. Well, for a new position's hard, but because obviously you may not have worked with them, so that's really difficult. Well, what's your definition first of resilience, perhaps? Look, it's, but, you know, you could go, you could be old school and say they've got ticker. Yeah, I could be more eloquent and say that it's it's that ability to poised and balanced and have the right temperament when you're faced with immensely difficult and challenging times and, and being able to be consistent and how you behave and react in that environment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the old school sounds ticker, you know, it's you know, is another word I'll use too, but I won't. But I think you do see this quite quickly. You do see people that get flustered very easily. And more often than not, in my humble experience, more often than not, people who lack resilience or whatever, ticker or whatever, it's usually driven by something completely unrelated to work. After then, their upbringing, background, their health, their relationships, their sense of self-worth, it's seldom connected directly to their work environment. In, in, well, it can be, but it's often not because, you know, I've seen people who you would think would be very tough mentally and then in a, in a work environment automatically sort of sense that the big strong woman or men you know physically are the ones that are going but they're often the worst yeah it's often the i'll give you an example so it's a show my age i went to boarding school at the age of 10 and one of the things i still remember in that first i grew up on a farm in new zealand i still remember in the first sort of 
six months, kids got very homesick, right? Because they were leaving home and they were, you know, they were um, being sent off to boarding school and it was pretty crude in my day, like it was Tom Brown school days. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty rough and ready kind of an experience. But, you know, one of the things I observed, some of the, some of the kids that were the physically the smallest were the toughest. Mm. Were the, the big kids that were great athletes and, you know, had muscles coming out of their eyeballs and stuff were the ones that were the most emotionally. And a lot of that, I think, goes to the fact that in life, if you have, you're getting into my theories now, but in life, if you think about when you're at school, so if you're at school and you're really, really, really good at something, either, you know, schoolwork, sport, music, art, if you're really good at something, that skill in that one dimension will carry you through to early adulthood, generally speaking. Yeah. Workforce. And if you were really, really good at something all of those years, and then you went to the workforce and the stuff that you were really, really, really good at was really no longer relevant, you're nowhere. Yeah. These people who, and I don't want to use sport, but you get a lot of people that were absolute superstars at sport. Where did you grow up? WA? Or are you... Where are you from? No, in Adelaide. There would have been kids, I'm sure. Maybe I don't know if you were, but but you know, someone who was just a freak AFL uh, football player, right? Yeah. At school, and then they, you know, maybe they got into whatever you call that league over there, yeah. and then they didn't quite make it to the big time force, and and they haven't built any compensatory skills around you know mental toughness. Mm. Uh, how do you get on with people? How do you build a set of rituals and tactics to to allow you to survive and a lot of being gifted is a curse i think more often than not yeah i think you're right yeah and you i see this all the time with with leaders who may have been very gifted as younger people Mm. and they don't make good leaders often because they're often quite selfish they're often quite they haven't built a way of communicating and collaborating and getting on with people because they've never had to because they're so good at everything. Mm. And that's a real curse. And I see this in leadership, mm. with people who have been, and they've never really had it to make any sacrifice. Mm. Mm. It's true. Their natural, ta- their natural talent has taken them through that early part of life and they've built no other skills. Yeah. Whereas in the teeth and you failed at a few things and you were just, you know, just average or above average, you're a far better bet. Yeah, it's true. People, mm. and you you've been you've been lucky enough to to study around the world in your younger days. New Zealand, what the London Business School too, and did I read somewhere Wharton as well? Yep, yeah, in Wharton, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to all those. Um, not yep. a not a bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was lucky. I mean, um, traveling the globe and studying economics. Yeah, well, I wouldn't overestimate it because I, you know, I um, they were those those three month sort of executive development programs. So. Mm, mm. You know, they still qualify. But, you know, what I learned out of any of that, and, I, and I'm not going to be arrogant because I, I think you would have worked out when I'm not. I didn't actually learn anything technically mm. um, <laughs> out of those courses. What I did learn, though, is, you know, I made a lot of great connections and a lot of great networks. And I learned a lot. Most of those sort of organisations are case study orientated institutions. So they tend to build all their curriculum around like real situations and the learnings from it. Yeah. And what I, I did learn some really interesting insights around 
you know, leadership in many cases. America was very insightful for me where I went to Wharton about a year before September 11 occurred, you know, the yeah, right. and um, a year before, and I still remember our, the guy who ran our whole, you know, so to put that in context, there's about 30 of you in a class, mm. and you've got guys that work for Coca-Cola, you've got guys that work for Boeing, for British Airways, for big IT, and there's only two bankers there. And um, but what you do learn is that, and, and I hadn't really thought about this, was massive different cultural mm. and approaches that different countries deal with things. And the other big thing I really never thought about until then was the huge interconnectedness between government and business and education in the US particularly. Yeah. And the guy who was our course leader was a professor at Wharton, and mm. he and he's a, he was effectively a geopolitical kind of guy, mm-hmm. professor, doctor, someone or other, Doctor Kenwin Smith actually, and he he actually said at the at the at our graduation dinner, he said, look, I think that, and I thought I couldn't believe this. He said, he said the the gap between the rich and the poor in the world is getting so great that before too long there's going to be a an incident that will be a metaphor for that. Wow. That's interesting. Are, yeah, we, seeing, are we seeing that incident now? Even was that incident, I think. Yeah, September 11 because, and then everything yeah. thereafter. Yep. So that it was a year after that those planes flew into the town. As soon as I saw that on TV all that time ago, that's exactly what I thought, and I emailed him straight away. And I said, is that what you were talking about? And he was a very humble guy, so he didn't sort of, you know. But that's what he was talking about. So, And then London, London Business School was, was interesting because that was just after the GFC. And we had the course – they had these wonderful guest speakers, but mm. um, the course director there, we had a whole day with the ex-CEO of um, UBS Bank or Credit Swiss Bank. Now, you may or may not be aware there were sort of Lehman Brothers, Bowerings, um, mm. That went broke, but also Credit Suisse did and UBS did. They they came out of it, but they went broke as well. And he was right. the CEO, so he he spent a day with us all. There was only thirty of us in the class again, just open for it. So you were CEO of a bank that went mm. broke in the GFC. What did you learn from that? And he was just very self depreciating, very open, very honest. And he mm. said, he said I knew I didn't act quick enough. He said I knew that. I knew that something wasn't right, mm. and he said, "I did. I trusted people too much." Now, I, now that's a very dangerous. That's a tricky one because you want people to think that you trusted, but he didn't have enough proof points in his sort of bag of tricks to actually just test whether they were. You know what I mean? Mm. So, and, yeah. and he said that was my learning, and he said, "I, I just that's another another thing where you've got." You've got to be confident that your people. Yeah. But there's more to your relationship with your executives than just a contract. One of the things that I hold true to with leadership is that what doesn't get checked doesn't get done. And it sounds bad because you want leaders to be hands off. But at the same time, if a leader doesn't have his hand on the tiller, then there's no, yeah, then the boat isn't going the direction you want it to go on. And I can see that a lot of those banks were letting a lot of the young, the younger, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, the younger bankers go go ahead and create those those books or create those investments 
and they weren't checking them from a regulatory standpoint. And then that was the undoing of, you know, the world's financial system, really. Fascinating. Good one. Yeah. No, I agree. And, and and you've got to be able to, you know, I think in leadership as well, you've got to be able to, I call it transcend strategic. The next minute, you've got to be right in the detail and then mm. then pivot simultaneously between both. Because if you're over the detail all the time, you'll never be strategic. But you've got to show that ability, the minutiae and the bigger stuff, yeah. and bring the two things together. Because what you've seen, I think, in and I some authority on banking, but if you look through the Banking Royal Commission, it's distant history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That was a fail, a failure of leadership at executive and board level. And what it was about was that they didn't understand the detail and they weren't transcending that strategic to operational regularly enough and with enough knowledge and insight and questioning the right things. Yeah. They were just sailing along and just assuming a whole bunch of stuff. And look, you can't assume, I was thinking leadership, you, can, you can't take anything for granted and you can't assume anything. It's a good point. And don't be surprised by anything. Mm. That would be my other learning. So never, ever be surprised by anything. And, and does that come through like playing the movie in your mind, strategizing what the second, third order effects might look like and then talking about that with your team? Yep, yep, yep. I'll come back to a specific example of that in a minute. But if you operate on the basis that you're never surprised by anything, mm. surprising does come up and, and people see how you react. Says, what you about you do about it? I mean, because it's happened, it's happened. It's how you respond. But if you, if you act startled and surprised, yeah. You're off balance, aren't you? Mm, that's right. I don't get surprised by anything, and I don't take anyone or anything for granted because I think if you have those sort of – if you have that mindset, then you're well for what could come at you. Yeah. It's a good – it's – yeah, I think I pretty much use the same, the same methodology, like to be able to think about everything that's coming up and look at the different permeations of what might happen and then – and then when they do, when it does come up, you're not surprised and then you don't have, you're not frozen in the moment because you've already visualized how you're going to get through this. And also thinking of the first and the, the second and third order impacts of those surprises, you know, so, mm. okay, so, you know, such and such did that. Okay, so what's the second and third order impacts of that? What's the ripple impact of that thing? And, and I'll give you a good, a good example of leadership is, so our major in-market when were you in the ADF? How long ago? Well, still serving as a reservist now, but uh, 19, sorry, sorry, yeah. 1991 yeah. through to 2012. Yeah. Okay. So you may have heard of the DOHAS home lending scheme that yep. the ADF person right. So we're, we're one of three panel providers for that. And NAV is a big bank, an Australian military bank, and us are the other two. Now, an example of what my expectation of leadership is. So yesterday... National Australia Bank came out with all of that dirty laundry, right? Now, they're our major competitor. So I said to the executive team, as soon as that came out, I said, okay, what are we doing about it? We're going to run to leverage how the staff in AMB will be feeling and how some of their, their customers may be feeling about their relationship and standing with that organisation, given all that brand damage and rep damage they're suffering. Yeah. That's going to be massive on the on the financial landscape, isn't it? 
and because I've been there, I was at Westpac for 20 years, so Westpac pretty well went broke. So I've been there. Mm. But I said, what are we going to do about it? And I said, the other one I use is this term, there's no anonymous giving. And I know that sort of sounds a bit self-interested, but if you're not telling your members or your customers about what you're doing, yeah. what your services are, what you can offer, they're not going to know. No, that's right. They're in this sort of, this kind of under the under the rock sort of being a victim. Tell them what you're doing. You know, so if NABA, if NABA, kicking your own goals and getting themselves, why wouldn't we leverage that? Yeah, I quite often use the, 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 the phrase, communicate everything, communicate often. And I think that's the, the best way to go as a leader is to be able to tell everyone everything you know so there's no silos. Look, there's a few funny, crazy theories I've got. <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on your theories. <laughs> it's, look, it's just, you know, it's, to be honest, it's just, it's just through experience. And mm. you always take the view that you can learn something, what to do and what not to do from who you work for for those that work for you mm. and for your and your peers, and you learn in equal parts what's good and what's bad. And I've had bosses who are who I've learned so much, some really really profound, brilliant things. And I've learned I've worked for bosses where I've learned some of the worst things. And you you just pick and you just pick and pack. Create create a golf golf bag approach around that. And I think the other one is this. Um, here's another theory that. And I suspect the military is a bit like this. I bet you BHP is, and it's not, I'm not picking on BHP, but they all are. What you've seen in the last 20 years is who progress quite rapidly into in big organizations. And I don't know about the military because I'm not close enough to it. What I call the articulate minority syndrome. Now, what that is, is that you see a lot of people in very senior positions in big companies who are very intellectually and very bright, very articulate, very good on their feet, but actually have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, I've met a few. In the last 20 years, corporate Australia has been fertile ground for those people. They have managed to capture the imagination and have had undue influence well beyond their genuine ability. And... This is where I'm thinking you're going to see companies go back to a more traditional valuing people that have experience, not valuing people that can mm. tell you the latest corporate jargon about value propositions or bullshit like that. Mm. It's going to be people with substantive cycle experience, opposed to people that can just talk a lot. Australia and corporate in the world has put a very high price in the last 20 years, and a lot of those people have come out of HR disciplines in those big companies and the marketing disciplines. A lot of them have never run a P&L. You know, they've never run a business. And when you actually look at a lot of the Royal Commission findings, a lot of the issues with the big banks was all of their top level was just full of people like that who were ex-consultants. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Yeah, no idea what it was like to serve a customer in a branch. Spin doctors. Mm. Sure that to some extent you've got that in the, in the military. I mean, I'm not saying there's probably a few more checks and balances, but, but you know, you do get these people that now those people are getting sorted out now. Mm. Yeah, interesting. It seems like the financial, you know, leadership is the same across the financial sector as it is across you know, the industrials and, and the military, 
I'm finding more and more of that the more academics I talk to as well around leadership. The theories are the same. And some of the stuff that you've said today has really resonated with me in particular. You know, conversations being the key to leadership. I don't think that's changed in any sector. It's all about conversations. Consistency, moderating your own temperament. I mean, that's just being a good person, I think. But Dave, what I, what I love that you said was the leading in white water. And I, I guess I didn't expect that to come from someone. Well, I didn't expect to come from the, that to come from the CEO of Defence Bank, you know, leading in white water. But I can see that that maybe in the last few years, the financial sector has been in, in a volatile, uncertain, um, contentious space. You do need to create a bit of white water too. So if you go back to some of those, if your people trust you, know that you treat them and, and you know people are treated fairly. I'll just, so can I just go back and say, the other big thing in leadership is don't play favourites. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have fallen in, in, I've fallen in that trap over the years, for sure. We've all been there. Hmm. I mean, I've been a, to be candid, I've been a conspirator and a victim in that environment, hmm. but I, I've learned that, that you never play favourites and that can only be judged through actions, not words, but hmm. As soon as you start moving away from that sort of merit contribution base type attribution, you you end up losing credibility, and then if you then you've lost your license. And I think that in leadership, you can't schizophrenic's not the right word. If you've got that right, those right pillars of them, you know, that trust and and all that stuff, you actually can you can be quite. You can challenge people, and you can be a bit uh, controversial. Mm. You know, you do have the you have got the mandate then to to say to people. I'll give an example. So, so we when banks change interest rates, right? They they have to go through a process of working out what the economics of an interest rate environment is, and then there's a whole bunch of legal disclosures, there's and system changes, and all sorts of things, right? Mm. So. A couple of weeks ago, we had a, um, you know, the, we changed our deposit rates. And so in a, in a meeting, well, look, it's going to take, it takes us two weeks to, well, I don't want to get into technical bank speak, to change the system stuff. I said, mm. I said, well, that's just unacceptable in a day. That's just unacceptable. And mm. work out why it takes two weeks to do that. And, of course, you and I know there's no real reason why it can't be. It's just the way that they've always thought. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is that you can't do it, and more, it's always taken two weeks. It'll always take two weeks. Yeah. So guess what? They came back three days later, and they did it in three days. But if you don't ask those questions, I think you've got to be. I think in leadership, great leaders ask questions. So they're not they're not rude, but they ask questions, and also they're not scared to admit they don't know something. Yeah, right. Do you have anything you want to say, David, to to the audience? whether it's about leadership or, or about banking or perhaps life after defence? Yeah, look, I think the I think um, leadership is not, it's not binary, you know. Leadership's not black and white. Leadership's about, you know, conversations and, and, and managing ambiguity well and building. It's hard to define, isn't it, leadership? Yeah, you can't. Yeah, it gets very textbooky and jargony and cliche if you... It's one of the most studied... Yeah, but- one of the most studied phenomenon, and yet we still can't get it right. <laughs> you see these real out. You look at a guy like Steve Jobs, who was an absolute tyrant of a guy, apparently. Yeah. On the other hand, look what he did. Or Hitler. I agree. It's still good uh, leadership to be able to. No, that's right. And, yeah. and you know, and, and and look in leadership. Look, the other thing in leadership, quite often, 
And this is a balance. Some people just want to be told what to do. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Not. They just don't want to know. Mm. Just, I don't want to think. I just tell me, look, I'm more than happy. Tell me what I want, what you want, how you want it. Mm. Maybe yeah. in some ways we don't value management as much as we should. It's an interesting one. Yeah. But look, mate, I'm yeah. Look, I'm more than happy to, more than happy to sort of help in any way. I mean, I love this stuff. I mean, I'm no expert, mm. but I am. Um, hard work. So, David Marshall, I want to. Thank you for being a guest on the Warrior You podcast. And I, th- I think the audience will all agree that your leadership insights especially are especially poignant at the moment, not just because they've come from the financial sector, but because they are so relevant across all the different sectors, to be honest. And it's been a real refreshing surprise for me to hear someone in your position talk as candidly as you have about leadership. So thank you very much. Great to chat. Righto. Thanks for listening, gang. If you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast and remember every dollar helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com. .com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just the physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. Righto. Thanks for listening and live a life worth living. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.